0: I want to invite you to uh, take your copy of of God's Word and and turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I want to ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse 13. These are the words of the living Son of God, uh, preserved for us and inspired by His Holy Spirit. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, "'You are the salt of the earth, "'but if salt has lost its taste, "'how shall its saltiness be restored? "'It is no longer good for anything "'except to be thrown out "'and trampled under people's feet. "'You are the light of the world. "'A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, "'nor do people light a lamp "'and put it under a basket.' but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, Father, Father, words are not adequate enough to... Uh, Describe our relationship. You're the High King of Heaven. You're the Creator of all that is material and all that is immaterial. Father, Your wisdom no, no, knows no bounds. Father, no one has given You counsel. Uh, you've depended upon no one for the entirety of Your being. You're eternal you're all-powerful. And Father, you're loving. For in your eternality, before, before time was even created, you set your love and your covenants upon a people. And you've brought them out of darkness. You've brought them into light. And oh dear God, you did this for a purpose. And this purpose was to make these people holy. To make them like your Son. And Father, ultimately, that they would be able to reach out and and to transform the lives of their fellow creatures, to bring glory to Your name, to advance the kingdom of heaven on earth. O Father, all of history is in Your hands. You've been working all things according to the counsel of Your will. And in that we rejoice. We praise to be used of You, dear God. Humble us. Make us holy. Let us learn from Your Word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So, of course, we are continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mountain. In our last session together, we concluded the Beatitudes. And we were awestruck by the fact that the, the, the pathway where grace will lead a man will ultimately end. In persecution. And we contemplated the, the persecution that some of the um, saints of yesteryear have endured for the sake of the gospel. But what we pointed out is the fact that the only reason this persecution comes is because the Christian person is living in such a way that, that is visible to others. No one is going to persecute you for being a Christian if you are not actively living and speaking like a Christian. In his high priestly prayer, our Lord, in in John chapter 17, Jesus, he's praying for the church, interceding for them as their high priest. And he says these words to his father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, I want you to notice something in those verses. Christ, he's... Now, as Al was singing for us tonight, and this is, this is an eternal truth. This is something we all need to grasp on. There is a sense... A real sense in which we as Christians can sing, "This world is not my home." Jesus, later in his sermon, he is going to be admonishing us not to uh, to store up treasures here, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in to steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And what Jesus says is, "For where your treasure is, there your heart is also." You see, our hearts are not to be set upon material things our hearts are not to be set on this world we are to always as christians be looking to the the coming the puritans talked about the kingdom of of grace which we live in now but the kingdom of glory that we are are waiting to spend eternity and and of course we need to understand that there are far too many christians who all of their hope is in in this right now and they do not look to that future eternal kingdom That's very, very true. We need to understand that. But also notice at the same time, our great high priest Jesus Christ does not not pray that the church, that Christians be taken out of the world. What does he say? He says that we would be spared from the evil one. And so, though we are not taken out of the world, we are still in the world, but we are not being conformed to the world. We are not being overtaken by sin. And so Jesus, he, he says, as you he's praying to his father and he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, it is Jesus's desire that Christians be in this world and have an active part in it. Not that Christians should engage in worldliness, but that just as Christ bore witness to the truth and and to righteousness in this world, Christians must themselves go into the world to bear witness to truth and righteousness. John was was mentioning in, in his prayer at the beginning of the service, the Great Commission. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, in light of the authority that Christ has, go. Go, go into the world. Make, make, make an impact. Reach people. The gospel has the power to, to, to change lives, to change hearts. And the thing is, God uses people to accomplish those ends. One of the uh, most fascinating things in Scripture is in the book of Acts. And there, there's a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And what God does is God sends an angel to Cornelius and he has the angel tell Cornelius to look for and and to await Peter because Peter was going to come and preach the gospel to him, and and he got saved. But, you know, I just ask these questions to myself sometimes, it's like, he could have just had the angel preach the gospel. I mean, you send the angel to him, and the angel says, hey, wait for this other guy, and then Peter, a man, comes, he preaches the gospel, and Cornelius gets saved. You ask, why is that? Well, it's because God delights to use human beings who are in the imago Dei, made in His image, to accomplish His purposes in the world. That's something to to think about. So, we are to be used of God. We are to be used of Him to have an influence in things. And so this is very important for us to recognize, and this is what Jesus is teaching us in our passage tonight. So as we, as we contemplate and as we consider these things, let us pray to the Spirit uh, for illumination that we might be led into all truth. And so this is chapter 5, verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, The first word of verse 13 is the word you, and that's extremely important. And if we misunderstand it, the rest of the passage is just going to collapse in on itself. There have been, throughout church history, different opinions as to who exactly these verses apply to, who is Jesus referring to. There have been some who would say that Jesus was only addressing the apostles here, that, that these truths only apply to them. Another view, and I think William Perkins had this view, would say that Christ, he's, he's talking to the disciples, but really he's, he's talking to all ministers, all, all ministers of the gospel. Now, probably your most prevalent view, this is the one that I'm going to put forward for you tonight, is that Christ is not just referring to the apostles, he's not just referring to preachers and, and to missionaries and evangelists, but Jesus is talking about all Christians universally you see contextually the you in this verse is the same group of people spoken about in the beatitudes which as we have maintained is is all christians So, all of you who are indwelt with the spirit of god all of you who call upon the name of the lord jesus christ for your salvation you are being spoken of here and jesus says you are the salt of the earth so he's not just talking to the preacher. He's not just talking about some extra spiritual, extra special, extra super class of, of Christians. No, he, he, he's talking about you. He's talking about you and, and really you, you need to listen. Uh, you know, Jesus says in another text, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's where our obedience comes from, by the way from our love. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. Now what does Christ mean by saying that we are the salt of the earth? Well, the thing we recognize immediately, and this is not too complex, I hope, uh, salt is a seasoning. In verse 13, Jesus raises the idea of salt losing its taste. So in just reading that, I, I believe that the immediate impact of what salt is supposed to mean is something to do with the taste of salt, salt as a as a seasoning. And so when Christ says we're the salt of the earth, we are Christian people, individuals, are that which seasons, that which brings flavor to this earth. In another text in Mark chapter 9, Jesus tells his followers to have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In Colossians chapter 4, we are told the apostle Paul writes and he says, let your speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. You see, it would seem that the New Testament uses salt as a metaphor for that which is pleasing and specifically that which makes things palatable. Uh, you know, there are certain foods which, if eaten by themselves, are, are nasty or, or just bland or, or at best mediocre but you add salt to those same exact foods it, it enhances the flavor it makes the dish more enjoyable and more acceptable to your taste buds and so it's like in colossians 4:6 we are not just told to let our speech be gracious but paul says to season it with salt you see this seasoning the speech with salt makes it more palatable for your listeners to receive and for your listeners to take in It makes our speech more gracious, more acceptable. And Paul says that we may know how to answer each person. And so Christians, you are the salt of the earth. The meaning is that you are to be used of God in such a way to make this earth more palatable, to make this earth a a better place. You're, you're, You're the seasoning, which makes it more pleasant and acceptable for people to live on. It's like there are many, many rough and, and rocky roads to travel in this life. Many things which can take a toll on a man or a woman. But a Christian in that situation can make it more palatable, can make it more uh, acceptable or more easy to, to go through. You, you know, take something that is uh, common to all human experience. Loneliness. Heartache. You know, how easily can, can we meet with loneliness? And I think especially in our modern context with, with the Internet and all these different things, it, I, I don't think this is too crazy, but, you know, we've all experienced... you ever looked at, been looking at your phone and, and wondering how it was that the advertisers knew what you were thinking about? Because, you see, what these algorithms do is they, with this computer technology, they analyze your Uh, purchases, like if you swipe your card at a store, if you buy a certain drink, you'll get advertising for that drink. They analyze your purchases. They analyze the things you're listening to. What are you searching? What are you watching? What what are you looking at and viewing? And they analyze all these different things. And your social media, literally, it's designed to, you know, only show you what it thinks that you want to hear. And what this does is it, it literally creates such a individualized, such a perfectly set-for-you environment on your, on your phone or on your computer that I think it has almost like a tendency towards isolation. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but let's say a family, a, a father, a mother, and two children, they're sitting, they're watching TV together. They're, like, they're all watching the same thing. But if they're on their phones the algorithm has literally designed it so that the father has his own world, the mother has her own world, the children, if you let your kids have, have these sorts of devices, have their own worlds on there, and it's like everything is so individualized to sort of separate us apart. And what this does is it increases our isolation, and it increases the feelings of, of loneliness and things that we have. And we all know... Uh, I have a sister who 's thirteen years old, and so i I know how teenage girls are. They look at what the popular girls are doing and and stuff like that and it 's like why why is her life so good and why why is mine not why why does she have friends? Why is she so pretty and 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 literally y you, you know we read in statistics and stuff. I was looking at some of these things the other day and rates of depression and suicidal thoughts and loneliness and all all this stuff is just just off the charts. And, and it's crazy. And, and you have children talking about how their life is, is, is meaningless and, 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 you know, suicide and taking pills to knock back your, your, your emotions. It's like all, all this, this craziness and loneliness. That's what it does to us. God... So, okay, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And He, you know, He, he makes all these different things. He, he makes... He draws the sun and the moon. He draws... The, the land and the, the seas and, he, and all the animals and all the trees and all these different things. And, and what does God keep saying? Good. This is good. This is good. This is good. The very first time God sees something and it's not, it's not ideal is when he sees man alone. He says it's not good that man would be alone. And so what does he do? He makes, makes a help me for him. He makes his wife. From the very beginning of human creation, human beings were not designed to be alone think about it. we were made in the image of god our god is triune he's a trinity father son holy spirit and eternal blessed love and fellowship and harmony there was never a time when 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 god was was alone and if so if we are made in his image we're not supposed to be alone and and our culture just so like idolizes this kind of thing i uh, you know, growing up I really liked like old like cowboy songs and things. And I just thought it was so cool like this idea of the outlaw and he wears all black and and he, and he rides in into the saloon and he comes in and everyone just like staring at this guy and he just is mean and intimidating, but you see it's like his heart's always broken cuz he's alone and he can't like make any connections with people. Uh that th- that's sort of like What American culture almost is just like pushing us towards. Isolation and loneliness is a hard thing. But a Christian makes that situation better. A Christian in your life. Think about the, you know, one of the fruits of the Spirit when Christians have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of them is love for the brethren. Think about that. Christians are, are not called to live lives alone, but, but lives with, with each other. And there's difficulties, and there's fights, and even in the church, we don't always agree on everything. We, we don't agree, should we be singing hymns or contemporary music? Should we have theater chairs, or should we have pews or all these different things? And it's like we fight over really silly stuff, and, and we forget about the love that we have for each other and and it sounds so cliche as i'm saying it but really it's it, it is amazing and it is beautiful and it is sweet and it is so precious and it brings much much joy to me and that's how christians can be the salt of the earth you just adding that flavor making this 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 journey that we're all on is the more palatable all of us in this room can probably think of a situation in their lives where they're just down and out, and there, there was a Christian, some godly man or woman of God, who came along and, and helped them through that situation and made it better. That's how Christians are supposed to be. We're the salts of the earth. We read in First Timothy chapter 5, it was a practice of the ancient church to assist godly widows who had walked faithfully with the Lord and, and were in good standing with the church when their husbands had, had died. As a matter of fact, James says that what true religion, what pure religion is, is to visit the orphan and and the widow. You read uh, the Old Testament law and and even some of the Psalms and how often is God instructing his covenant people to look after and to care for the orphan and and for the widow, those who are oppressed. That's how God would have us to be. But these words of our Savior have a much broader and, and wider impact as well. For Christians are not just the salt of individual situations, we're the salt of the earth. Think of the many hospitals, think of the many orphanages and schools that have been built or funded by Christians throughout the ages. As a matter of fact, even in our own country's history, the abolition of slavery, now obviously there are different kinds of slavery throughout history, even in the Bible. There were some that were more of like indentured servitude or, or bond servant type of situations. And, and God actually uh, permits some of these things because it's to help the individual. If they can't pay their debt rather than throwing them in prison or something like that, they could, they could work, they could make restitution. But that's obviously not the only kind of slavery that's ever existed. And even in the Levitical law, The Old Testament law said that if you were to kidnap and enslave someone, that was worthy of the death penalty. God has never permitted that kind of slavery. Well, that was the kind of slavery that was going on in this country. People were being kidnapped, stolen in Africa, and then you have the the triangle and and brought here. Well, Christian abolitionists in the 19th century and even before that Looked at the situation, and then they looked at their Bibles, and they said, "This this has to change." Well, what did they do? Well, well, they spoke towards the situation, and and eventually, there are obviously all kinds of political factors involved, but they they got what they were looking for. They they changed the way that a lot of Americans viewed the topic of slavery. Why? And it all came from their Bibles, and it all came from this desire to be the salt of the earth. You see, it's not just like the individual situations that Christians help out in. It's whole societies, it's whole economic structures being influenced by the Christian church for good. We'll look at some more examples as time goes on, but for, but for now, we first need to just deal with these things in order. And I, and I want to look at, the warning that Jesus gives us. He asks sort of a rhetorical question in verse 13. He says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You see, if salt is no longer salty, if salt is no longer performing the simple and basic functions that salt is supposed to do, it's completely worthless. Could you imagine non-salty salt? What if I what if, what if I did this? What if I handed you a container of non-salty salt? Like, you know, it it looked like salt, it had, you know, the tiny little white minerals, and 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 when you poured it, it shook out, and it felt like salt, and it looked like salt, but it didn't taste like salt. It didn't have any of the preserving elements of salt, none of the the chemical structure, but I just had it like a jar of white powder that didn't do anything. I mean, mean, that would be nonsense. That would just be completely worthless. Could, Could you imagine anything More worthless and absurd than non-salty salt, that would be like if I handed you a piece of paper you couldn't write on. You you would wonder why? Why would you even take the time to acquire something like this? Why why would you even think that I would want it? What what am I supposed to do with this? And what would you do? You throw it out. It's worth nothing. That's exactly what Jesus says about non-salty salt. You say, Logan, I I get the point. Well, good, I hope you do. A Christian who is not doing the things that Christians are supposed to do are just that absurd and laughable and insanely worthless. If Christians are not seeking to advance the kingdom of God, if Christians are not seeking to be be the salt, if they're not seeking to preach the gospel, if they're not seeking to have a positive impact on their families and their friends and their communities and and their nations, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, and then what he says is, if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? You see, the thing that makes your food salty is when you pour salt on it. Well, if even your salt isn't salty, how how do you salt that? The point is, you can't. Well, here's the thing. If even the Christian church is not preaching the Word of God, if even the Christian church is not advancing God's truth, if even the Christian church is not being the salt of the earth, Who's, who's going to preach to them? If, if even the pastor, if even the preacher is not preaching the word, who's going to preach to him? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. And you see what a scary thing this is. And Christ attaches a warning of judgment. He says, if salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Well, in verse 14, our Lord continues. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus now, he's speaking to the same you. He's speaking to Christians, the same people who are the salt of the earth. He also says are the light of the world. And that that is a a beautiful thing to be said for sure. But what what I want us to think about is the fact that in John 8, 12, Jesus, likewise, calls himself the light of the world. As a matter of fact, the exact words are, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so I think we see something very beautiful here. Christ, Jesus, he is the the true light, the true light that has come into the world. Christians follow after him. They no longer walk in darkness because they have this light in themselves. And it is these kinds of people who then themselves can be called the light of the world just as Jesus was the light of the world in a certain sense. And, and so this light of Christ is reflected in and through the Christian church, through individual Christian people. And so what does this light do? Well, it shines. It helps us see there is a, a, a revelatory aspect to this, meaning the light helps us to see and understand things that we did not already know. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, we read that the God of this world, not referring to Yahweh but to Satan, the enemy, the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, natural men in their fallen state are enslaved, are in bondage to their sin. It says that the God of this world has blinded them, demonic, literal demonic forces, keeping them from seeing the true light of Christ. And that is the exact state that every single one of us are born into. But we keep reading the passage, and it says that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the amazing thing the apostle here is telling us is that just as their eyes were opened when the Spirit of God applied the message of the gospel to their hearts they now proclaim that same message of the gospel which when aided by the power of the Spirit according to the secret will of God has the power to shine a light in others as well and to open their eyes. It's like what Jesus says in in John uh, during the, uh, uh, the Feast of the Lights and he says, whoever drinks of this water that I give out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, we don't keep our Christianity to ourselves, but it flows out into the world. And that's exactly what happens here. The, the, those, the apostles who had their eyes opened, now preach that same message. The same spirit aids in that work and opens up the eyes of other people. And that is a beautiful thing. So Christ, He is the light of the world. He opens the eyes of the church. He makes the church the light of the world. Then the church spreads that same light to the ends of the earth. It's a powerful thing. But just as it is absurd to have unsalty salt, so too is it absurd to have a light that doesn't shine. Jesus says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I have to take some time to address this. This phrase may be something you're familiar with. Um, It was popularized by Ronald Reagan in the 1970s, and it's this idea of of America, the United States, as a shining city set upon a hill. And the idea is that America is a distinctly Christian populace, if you can imagine a of our president now saying that, that the rest of the world would look at and it was, would be this glimmer of true light and, and the knowledge of the glory of God. Well, Reagan did not, obviously it's a biblical phrase, but Reagan's not the first one to use that. It actually comes from uh, the early American Puritans, a guy by the name of John Winthrop. Well, John Winthrop, who is he? he sailed to the New World in 1630 on a ship called the Arabella. And in one of his letters to his wife, he actually actually writes to his wife that this crossing the Atlantic, sailing from England to the New World, he says it's going to be a tough experience, a hard experience, but that he knows God is going to use it to strengthen his faith, which I just think is a beautiful thing. But anyways, aboard the ship, he delivers the most famous speech he ever gave in his life, in which he said, considering the new land that they're going to go to. He says, We must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we should deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause Him to withdraw His present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. You see, as shocking as this is, Our forefathers, the men who first settled this land, were men with Reformed, Puritan, Protestant convictions. Their desire was, they, they believed that Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth, and they believed that he was going to establish justice in all the earth, that the coastlands were going to wait for his law, that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Those are all biblical promises, by the way. Well, they believed them. And so they believed that they were, they were going to go to this new world and they were going to uh, worship God there freely, but that they believed Jesus was going to advance and establish his kingdom there. That's why there was such a willingness and, and a desire to uh, evangelize the American Indian population because they believed that God was going to save them. And so this sentiment of America as this, this city on a hill, this, this beacon of light for the kingdom of God. This was something that caught on with a lot of the New England Puritans. They desired to become a place that the rest of the world would look at and see right there. There is the light of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, a few decades after the, after the American Revolution, there was a French uh, social writer who visited this country And when he got back, when he was describing what is so distinct, what is so different about this land in in America, what he says is, they're churches. They are distinctly Christian people. What you have to remember is that not only uh, just a few decades after the American Revolution was the French Revolution, and one of the causes for the French Revolution was the the Enlightenment philosophers and increasing secularism and, and these different things, Not that that's what our sermon is about. The point is this. Just as those men who risked their lives sailing to this country believed that they needed to live in such a way that they would reflect the light of Jesus Christ and that if they were to depart from this righteous living that others would look at them and see that they they really weren't serious about their faith. That same fever... It needs to be within us. Because Jesus says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And if you are the light of the world, you cannot be hidden. This light must shine. This light must go forth into the world. The Puritan hope was even greater than this. Our forefathers believed that the gospel was not just going to transform their society. They believed it was going to transform the entire world. And should not we believe the same thing? The Bible itself says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The question is, how does that happen? How does that happen? How exactly is Jesus going to establish his kingdom in all the earth? Well, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me in the Great Commission, what did he say? Go, therefore. He uses the church. You see, he didn't have an angel preach the gospel to To Cornelius, he had Peter. Why? That's what he wanted to do. That was what his plan is and always was. He uses his church. And it's like, you know, I read about these these men like Winthrop, and and he risks his life, his life, excuse me, sailing to New England to spread the gospel here. And it's like some of us aren't even willing to, to cross the street or to. Make a conversation uncomfortable or or to offend a person for the sake of the gospel. Well, Jesus says in verse 15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He gives us another illustration. How self-defeating would it be to light a lamp, then hide it under a basket or, or a bushel? like so that would just be ridiculous. That, that would be silly. To take the time, to take the effort to like, put oil in a lamp and, and to put a wick there, get something to light it, and then after it's lit, cover it with a basket. Why would, why, would, why would you do something like that? Jesus says, no, nobody does that. What they do is they light a lamp and they let the light give light to the whole house. Well, Christian, you are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill is not going to be hidden, but will be visible for all to see. And you're not going to cover up a lamp with, with, with a basket, no. But you, as the light of the world, are to shine and to shine brightly. And notice, Jesus doesn't just say that the light shines up a part of the house. He says the light shines up the whole world. I believe my God's powerful enough to do that. I hope you do, too. Well, in verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, dear Christian, let your light shine. Okay, let your light shine. Shine brightly. Let your light shine before others. Jesus says that the end result of this is that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, do you see how God-centered this ought to be? There are many people who do good works, but they only do it so that others would glorify them. You think about, you've seen those YouTube videos, people You know, they video themselves giving money to homeless people, and they just got this big smile on the face, and it's like, move the camera so so you can get me in it, right? And it's like, all that is wicked. All that is sinful. All that is self serving. A Christian, a true Christian, does not want to make himself a celebrity, to make himself an idol, or to make himself a hero. No, there's only one hero in this story. And his heart burns for good deeds, but only so that people would see his heavenly father through them. So here's something I, I want to get to. Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, in our last sermon, we talked about the grim reality that is persecution. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the message of the gospel is not always received with love, but sometimes it is reacted against bitterly. The non-believing world hates this message. And therefore, Christians should not be surprised when persecution comes. But what we absolutely cannot do is to take that truth and to twist it and distort it and presume that the gospel will never be successful in converting people. We have to recognize that it is God who saves sinners according to the counsel of his will. There are times when God grants salvation and there are times when he withholds it. But these are not things which we decide. These are things which are hidden within his secret will. And so then we cannot live the Christian life thinking that the gospel is never going to succeed and and, and no one's ever going to get saved and this world is just going to fall apart. We can't live like that. We have to be hopeful people. We have to be people who trust in our God, who trust in the gospel, that is the power of God unto salvation, to trust in the Holy Spirit, to save sinners. You see, it's like we can't just, you know, think like, well, there's no use, you know, witnessing to this guy. It's not like he's going to get saved anyways. What what are you even talking about? He's not going to get saved anyways. God saved you. And and it's not like he is any worse a sinner than you were when he changed your heart. If he can take out your stony heart and give the heart of flesh to you, he can do the same for him. If he can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can raise that man from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have to believe in God. We have to be hopeful, joyous people. You know something? Jesus says in, in John chapter 14, he says, whoever believes in me, he will do the works that I do. And then he not only says that, but he says, even greater works than these will he do. What are the greater works? It's not like you know, Jesus turned water into wine and so now I'm going to do some cool party tricks. No, it's about making God known to this world. After Pentecost, you want to know something? The, the early church was preaching the gospel. 3,000 souls saved at one time. And, and, and as I always say, here we are in Vermilion, Ohio, just across from Lake Erie. When Jesus was saying to those Galilean fishermen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, you know what was going on here? Well, there wasn't a Christian church. There was all kinds of, of pagan and idolatrous uh, religions fighting wars and bloodshed with one another. And, and Jesus is establishing his kingdom here. He is establishing peace here. He is establishing justice here. And by the way, he's going to do it in the Middle East as well. You say you don't believe me. I say you need to believe me because these promises are in Scripture. Zechariah chapter 9. He's going to speak peace to all nations. That includes America. That includes Israel. That includes Palestine. That includes China. That includes North Korea. He's this Prince of Peace, the Siar Shalom. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given. He is going to do it. You read Daniel 7, the great enthronement scene. he is given a kingdom and a dominion that is everlasting, that will not be taken away from him. And we don't trust him and we don't believe him. And we get so discouraged because we spend more time watching the news and reading our Bibles. But he is going to do it. And it may not be in this generation. And it may not be my children, it may not be my grandchildren, it may not be my great-great-great-grandchildren, but, you know, a a bruised reed, he's not going to break, a smoking flax, he's not going to quench, but he will not grow weary, he will not grow faint until he has established justice in all the earth. Isaiah 42. That's the God that I believe in. And so we have to be people who believe this stuff. We have to be people who trust the the gospel is powerful. We have to believe that God will save sinners. And so though we understand that persecution may come and they may close your bank accounts, they may uh, shut this down, whatever it is that they're going to try and do, we have to prepare our hearts to endure that persecution. But we can never get so discouraged that we no longer believe that our God is the God who raises the dead. The Apostle Paul endured all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. One of the things that happened in the history of the Christian church that I think had some negative effects was what we call the monastic movement. We see this beginning in the 3rd century. It really becomes widespread during the 4th where essentially what happened was men looked around at the Roman Empire and they saw all the sin and they saw all the carnality and everything and were just completely disgusted by it. Now, they rightly looked at this and what they realized, they themselves did not want to be corrupted by this sinful world. And so what they did was essentially drop out of society and the men who did this were were called monks and they would go off and they would live in remote unpopulated areas usually deserts and there they would you know they would do good spiritual things they would focus their minds upon god upon his word and upon holiness and and initially things were not really all that that bad with it Uh, many of these men living in this monastic lifestyle still did what they could to influence the church. You've heard of the great Athanasius, who's less popular is Athanasius' great friend, Antony, who was a, a monk who lived in the desert, who, by all accounts, was an incredibly godly man and had a tremendous impact even on the theology and thinking of, of Athanasius. And, you know, the, the early monasteries almost functioned as, as a sort of seminary, and many clergymen who serve in the church would come out of these things. But obviously, history, you know, things develop and things change over time. And, you know, certainly through the Middle Ages, and and by the time we get to the Reformation and Roman Catholicism, uh, the movement had evolved to sort of a really bad point, to say the least, with all kinds of ridiculous vows and and things that were nowhere to be found in Scripture. Uh, Anyone who knows about the early life of Martin Luther and his time as a monk, I mean, he had permanent damages to his body because of the hard lifestyle that he lived Uh, knows how bad things got with this incredibly strict style of life and they also you know started believing that men could develop this sort of angelic uh, perfection Uh, and, and but the point is that what happened was these men and also the women the nuns who separated themselves from the rest of the world when Christ never told them to and that's the big thing had morphed into this strange, unbiblical way of life that essentially left them useless to the rest of the world. That, there's a reason why we call the dark ages the dark ages. It is because the light was being quenched slowly and slowly. And you see, it's really hard to be the salt of the Earth when you've separated yourself from there. It's really hard to be the light of the world when you're no longer in the world. Jesus, he prays to his Father, and he says, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you'd keep them from the evil one. And so, when it all started out, we we read about the early desert fathers. They had noble aspirations. They, They lived much holier lives than I probably ever will, and that saddens me. It really does. But by the time things develop, and once you get to the Reformation, it was no longer godliness that they were pursuing, but it was self-righteousness. And if you want to read a, a really good uh, criticism of all that, read in, in Calvin's Institutes in Book fourth, where he uh, really just, just demolishes all that stuff. But then contrast the monastic movement with some of the other things we see in the early church. You see, while the early monks looked at the sin of the Roman Empire and with a correct correct desire to abstain from worldliness, they, in my opinion, incorrectly separated themselves from the world. But there were also many early Christians who looked at the sin around them and said, no, we're not going to separate ourselves from the world, but what are we going to do? We're going to be salt and light. Abortion and infanticide were common practices in the Roman Empire. Some of the pagans, if if contraception did not work, they would look to have an abortion. Now, the technology of murdering babies has sadly advanced a lot over the past two millennia. But even back then, women who wanted to murder their children could mix up different concoctions and take different drugs to have their child killed. However, these potions did not always work. Uh, So there are different mechanical ways of doing it women would sometimes take this, like a rope, like take a cord, and even sometimes doing it by themselves, tie it around their womb to restrict the child and and have it killed. But in many cases, in these days, um, women did not choose to have abortions. Obviously, these ancient primitive methods were extremely hazardous, and a lot of women uh, were killed trying to to take the lives of their children. And so what happened is, Women would give birth, and if she or her partner or whoever didn't want the child, what they would do is they would simply leave the child out in the sun or on a pile of trash until it died alone, crying without a mother to console them. Archaeologists have actually obtained a letter written supposedly from my husband to his pregnant wife, and he, which he wrote, If you give birth to a boy, let it live, if it is a girl, throw it away. Beloved, that's, an, that's evil on a level I cannot really comprehend. And, and I mean, think about, you know, for some of you who aren't mothers or even fathers out there, could you imagine setting your newborn child crying on, on a pile of trash and just, just like leaving them there alone to die? I almost wonder if any of those mothers, uh, before they did that, if they took a cloth and, and wrapped the child first because mothers have that instinctive love, I wonder if they, they did that before they left them or if they just, with cold hearts, just just walked away. Now, why would I depress us all um, by describing these things? Well, the early church was absolutely opposed to this kind of thing, even from our very earliest Christian sources, from what we call the apostolic age. We already find Christian writers opposing this. But the Christians did more than just write. They they did more than just speak. They actually influenced the world around them. Many Christians, it has been reported, would actually retrieve some of these vulnerable children and love them and raise them and, and care for them as Their own. After all, did James, the brother of our Lord, not say that true religion is to visit the orphans in their affliction? As the gospel of Jesus Christ spreads throughout the Roman Empire, and especially by the time of the 5th century, when the empire had become more thoroughly Christian, these practices of abortion and infanticide had been outlawed, just as the gladiator games and and, and many other of the remnants of paganism have been done away with. Now, the only reason that these terrible atrocities were done away with was because our early fathers wanted to be salt and light in this world. Could you imagine if instead of fighting to protect the lives of these children, those Christians had instead just retreated into their own private little communities and had had no impact on the world? Jesus says to those kinds of people that they are like salt that is lost its saltiness. To have a Christian who has the light of Jesus Christ and to just put a basket over it can never be. It can never be. And yet, how many of us, how many of us who say that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and this is the infallible Word of God from from Genesis to maps, and it's like we, we can say those things but shrivel away to even say something that would cost us a friendship or to cost us a relationship. Now, I realize there are many things that we would love to do as Christians that we simply don't have the means to. Uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin at Apology Church in Arizona, his church has done so much work in, in fighting to end abortion all over this country, and he himself has actually now adopted three children and is raising them as his own. And It's like that is beautiful. I realize we don't all have the means to do something like that, but we we do all have voices. We do all have voices. We can speak. We can have conversations with people. Not on the Internet. That is the absolute worst place to have a conversation is on a Facebook comment section, by the way. I mean, you know, one-on-one communication. That's That's where things happen. We can have these conversations. We can speak the truth of Jesus Christ to these important issues. But so many of us are cowards. So many of us are cowards. So many are not losing to lose, willing to lose friends over these things. So many people are so afraid of conflict that we won't even stand up and let the world know that we're followers of Jesus Christ and our Lord and Savior calls us to love those who are oppressed. And, and we will not stand for the murder of unborn children. Now let me tell you something, you can have your reward if that's truly where your treasure is, but you know, the early church, the pagans hated them. The pagans absolutely hated the Christians. Why? Because they were preaching this whole different moral ethic, this whole different lifestyle, and and they were also saying that their God, that Jesus Christ, was the only true God. But you know something, those men and those women, they they sought to be salt and light in this world. They already believed Jesus' words when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and so they they were willing to risk it. Their desire were to be peacemakers, to make peace with the society around them, to bring God's truth and God's shalom to to the whole world. And for a period of time in the empire, they were successful. But here's the thing. Some of these exact same battles are being fought today. Now where will we stand? Where will we stand? Now, here's the thing. When I started talking about these social issues, and I hate that it's considered a political issue, because when we're talking about this abortion, we're not talking about economics. Okay, we're not talking about foreign policy. When we're talking about people. We're talking about lives. We're talking about mothers and their children, and it's a very tender subject. It's not, it's not politics. But But still, when I started talking about these social issues, I made a lot of you uncomfortable. Somewhere along the way, people have gotten this, this really insane idea that the church is not supposed to speak on these things. Uh, those of you, if you, for better or for worse, follow current theological discussions online, especially uh, you know in, in certain circles, have perhaps heard the term Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is the new thing that everyone is fighting about and arguing over. Now, where do I stand? I think that there are many people who call themselves Christian nationalists who say a lot of things that I really love, and there are a lot of people who call themselves Christian nationalists who I want nothing to do with. So so I I do not I do not use that term of myself. But these groups have caused a lot of uproar. And what it's done is it's made it important for us to have the conversation, well, what exactly is the relationship between the Christian church and the state? Now, there would be uh, some in the church who would say that the church needs to say out of anything that would be considered political. Uh, now, Now, answering all those questions are very, very difficult, and we have to use a lot of wisdom and to think through them. Uh, You know, many of you have heard of separation of church and state. But what you probably have not heard is where that phrase actually comes from. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in the Constitution. So where did it come from and what does it mean? Well, in the year, this is a history lesson, but in the year 1801, the Dansbury Baptists in Connecticut wrote a letter to sitting president Thomas Jefferson. The concern that the Baptists had was that they were a minority in the state of Connecticut. You see, the state of Connecticut was mostly made up of congregationalists who had a similar church uh, government or polity to the Baptists, but they practiced, for instance, Pato baptism baptized infants. Uh, John Owen was a congregationalist. Well, at any rate, any rate, the state of Connecticut, because of their mostly congregational population, sort of backed the congregational church as though it were the established uh, church or religion of Connecticut. And so for the Baptists to exist and to worship as Baptists really put them under public scrutiny. So they wrote a letter to Jefferson, and their argument, well, they were saying that a freedom, religious freedom, was an inalienable right, and their desire was, were to have their rights further protected. Well, on January 1st, 1802, Jefferson wrote back and he said, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature, referring to the federal government, should. Quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And Jefferson continues saying, thus building a wall of separation between church and state, adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, rights of conscience, remember that phrase, I shall see with sincere satisfaction that the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore man all his natural rights Convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. Now that was a mouthful, but you see, what am I getting at? This idea of church and state being a wall of separation, this was for the purpose of protecting the church. Not once did it ever cross Jefferson's mind as he wrote those words that, Decades and hundreds of years later, Americans would be using that phrase to argue that we should not legislate in accordance with uh, biblical morality or biblical ethics or God's law. As a matter of fact, he uses that phrase, rights of conscience. Now, do you know where the, the the idea of liberty of conscience comes from? Where does that come from? It does not come from the Enlightenment. It comes from the Protestant Reformation. It comes from Martin Luther. It comes from John Calvin, arguing that uh, there was a liberty of conscience. Since Jesus Christ alone is Lord of the conscience, no one has a right to put on another Christian a rule that Jesus has not put there. So he's borrowing a phrase from Reformed Protestant theology arguing that the government should not restrict people's right to worship. This has nothing to do with saying that we should not you know, seek to uh, legislate in accordance with, with God's law. It, it did not even enter into his mind that that's what he was saying. But you say, okay, well, that's Thomas Jefferson. I'm not a Jeffersonite, I'm a Christian. So what does Jesus Christ have to say about this all? How does Jesus want us to relate to society? How does Jesus want us to relate to politics? I think by now I've made my case that Jesus very obviously wants Christians to be influential in this world. Those who would say that the church should not have a voice on matters of, quote, politics seem to me to be completely in error. I heard a preacher recently say that, you know, when Paul was before King Agrippa... He did not preach politics. He preached the gospel. Now, it is quite true that when Paul was before Agrippa, he did not give a lecture on economics. He did not give a lecture on foreign policy or any explicitly governmental or political issues. That is all very true. What did he do? He did preach the gospel, though. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, Paul defines the gospel as saying, you know, referring to those who believe that they repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, the question that we have to deal with is how does King Agrippa II, in his particular calling and role as king, perform deeds in keeping with repentance? How does he do that? Because as a carpenter, I have to be a carpenter as a Christian. I cannot build something that is unsafe for someone. Why? That would go against God's law. In the Old Testament, uh, in that time period, they had flat roofs. And people that's where people would dwell. And so there's a law in the law of Moses that you had to have a, a railing so that no one would fall off. To Now, obviously... None of my house does not have a railing around its roof because it's, it's not a flat roof. But my house is hopefully built in such a way and in such a standard that it is safe to live in. Uh, for instance, uh, in, this, uh, in, in, in this country, if you have a pool, it is by law that you're supposed to have a fence, a, a railing of protection around it. So if I want to honor Jesus Christ as a carpenter, I have to do that my trade in such a way that comports with God's law. The question is, how does a king do that? How does a king perform his role as a king to the glory of God? What's the standard? Well, I would argue that the standard is God's law. Now, back to where we started. Christians, individual Christian people, you and me, as salt and light in the world, the primary calling of the church, as far as teaching is concerned, is to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as Paul says in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God. And so here's the thing. As individual Christian people who learn the whole counsel of God from their local shepherds, then go out, they live in this world as salt and light. And what I am suggesting is that it is this right here where cultural and societal transformation happens. This, then, is what would ultimately lead to uh, changes reflected in the government and things like that. You see, the Christians in the primitive church fundamentally changed the Roman Empire, but this was only by God's grace being operative in the lives of individuals who applied the gospel to their particular callings. Now, there are so many things we could talk about. Uh, but time is an adversary of mine, it would seem. And so back to one of my early points. Uh, Jesus said that, that you, this is where it all gets down to, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. How can you live out this calling? Everything you do, from simple, one-on-one, small acts of kindness with other people, all the way to the, the giant social issues of our day. All of these things matter. There's nothing that's unimportant. How you treat someone, what the government does, Jesus cares about all these things. You, you may not ever get a chance to serve as a legislator in this nation. That's fine. That's fine. God called you to somewhere else in this life. But you may, by the words you speak, by the life that you live, influence a young child today that God will raise up and use to do mighty things in this world. That's why if you were here for our service this morning, Pastor Cliff labored so much in talking about the children, planting seeds in the children. You see, you know, we all got a a shelf life on us, but... You know, we raise up the next generation and then their generation after them and their generation after them. And just with the sphere of influence that God has given us, that is how we can be salt and light in the, in the world. But you can't do it if you don't have any salt in you. You can't do it if you don't have any light in you. And so what you need to do is you need to trust firmly and solely And Jesus Christ, for his righteousness is imputed to you by faith. And Jesus says, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. You can't be the salt of the earth. You cannot be the light of the world if you are not walking in accordance with his law. I mean, you cannot criticize the social issues. You know, you cannot call out the speck of sawdust in someone's eye when you have a plank in your own. So it all starts with examining your own heart. And so pray that Jesus would and by his grace by the power of the Holy Spirit pray that you would be true salt pray that you would be true light and ask God to show you how you can influence just the particular calling that he has given you love other people be kind to them and always proclaim the truth to join me in prayer Father God Father, we rejoice to hear from your word tonight. Father, we just pray that these these things would not fall on deaf ears, but we pray that there would be true, transformative, spiritual impact in all of us. Dear God, we pray to honor you and to please you in all that we do. Do mighty things through the power of your word, dear God. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.